This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. I'm speaking with Oregon Representative John Lively, who is a Democrat representing Springfield, District 12. He has lived in Springfield for more than 50 years, but was born in La Grande and grew up in Wallowa. He has served on the Springfield City Council and as the city's mayor and is headed into his seventh session for the Oregon Legislature. Last year, he began serving on the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Education, where budget recommendations are made for the education portion of the state budget. He is also a member and chair of the House Committee on Early Early Childhood and Family Supports, which is focused on programs for children age 0 to 5. Representative Lively, welcome. Thank you very much. I'd like to start with the question about why early learning is important to you and, and why did you want to chair that committee? Sure. So my uh, interest in early learning goes back about 25 years ago, which is hard when I think about today to believe, but it started with a local effort here in Lane County uh, where we had a, a growing problem in child abuse. So from my standpoint, uh, helping children be successful is always just, whether it's in K through 12, wherever it's at, is important to me, but the child abuse issue in those days was severe and growing, and so a group of local citizens in that, we formed a committee and started working on how do we diminish child abuse, how do we bring attention to resources that are available, and so out of that effort, once that committee was started, uh, we transitioned, and kind of the next thing was Success by Six, which is a national program, which really started the focus on more than just child abuse, but children in general, and the idea of preparing them for school. Uh, the more I was involved with that effort, and the more I learned about the research that's been done, and a lot of it here in Lane County at the University of Oregon, the brain research about children's brain development, mm-hmm. uh, the more convinced I became that this is a critical, critical area. And if we're truly uh, committed to helping our children succeed, uh, that we have to start earlier in the cycle than we were doing on that zero through five is critically important. So the more I got involved, so I stayed involved with success by six. Uh, sometime after that, the state Uh, became more interested in a collaborative look at early learning at the state level. And by that point, I was serving in the legislature and uh, started working on some of those issues. And so when the uh, speaker uh, agreed that we needed a committee specifically to address those, and she asked me, it was a logical step for me, given the years and what I've learned about it and the value of it and how strong I feel uh, about both the role of the state and locals. So it was easy for me just to step in and say, sure, I'd be glad to do it. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, things have changed since your time initially working on child abuse issues and what that looks like today? Yeah, so uh, when we first started looking at child abuse, there was <laughs> it was more it was more not around so much any learning environment and or what the impacts had longer term for children with kind of the immediate impact and what was going on in families and how you stop that impact and didn't have a lot of sense. Uh, well, we didn't focus a lot on. Uh, So if we're able to prevent, quote, child abuse or diminish it, what else did you need to do besides just doing that uh, to help them be successful? So part of it, from my standpoint, was kind of the short-term view. The short-term view years ago was just simply we need to get it stopped, prevent it. But we weren't looking at, so what else, even if we stopped that one incident, what else might happen Mm -hmm. or could happen Mm -hmm. that would lead to other things, whether it's child abuse or not, that would diminish the chance for the kids to be successful. So like I say, fortunately over that time, a lot changed nationally, more and more changed in Oregon. But during that time when a lot of research was being done on children, brain development, and and the impacts of trauma 
on children at different levels, and it, it broadened our understanding of it. It isn't just child abuse. So kids can be in a lot of situations that wouldn't be described as abuse, but still not getting the support that they need to ultimately reach the goals or where they want to go. There's more and more attention being placed on the effects of trauma in early childhood t- today. It seems yeah. like there that's really become uh, more of a focal point. It has, and you know, and the the frustrating part from a standpoint, the more we understand, the more we realize there's the trauma is widespread, uh, and there's different levels of trauma. But even kids already in school, in many cases, their ability to learn is being impacted by trauma. It may be family trauma, it may be community trauma. There's a lot of different things, but we do know more about it. But what we do know is the earlier you can identify it and mitigate for it, the more likely the kids can be sexual. But trauma has become, fortunately, we're more aware of it, uh, but certainly becoming more of a reason to do more earlier in order to try to address it. What kinds of uh, early childhood programs and services or initiatives are you excited about right now? And can you talk about those? Sure. So a lot of things going on. But so the whole idea, one of the things we're working on uh, currently, besides all these agendas, but one is child care, both quality of child care, affordability of child care, access, all of those issues. Because what we know is, first, we don't have enough childcare in total available. Secondly, it's too expensive. And it's not unique to Oregon. It's true in a lot of places, but it's too expensive. So many that need childcare uh, have to compromise, meaning that they don't, uh, can't invest in the level of childcare they want to. And so they're making decisions, either who they leave their children with or not, what they do there, that the children aren't getting the best possible support they need during that time. So uh, we're looking a lot. So how do we support quality childcare we have now? How do we expand the access, and especially how we, do we make sure it's available rural Oregon, which is a much more difficult task than that. Uh, and a key part of that is the professionals that work in that field, making sure they get compensated fairly. It's hard work, and we expect it to be quality and meet certain standards, but in many cases the pay levels have never supported doing that. So it's kind of all of those things. So child care, the availability of child care. There's a lot of conversations about preschool, quote, becoming more like now we've got full day kindergarten. Now shouldn't we have full time preschools as part of education? That's right. controversial. Not everybody agrees. Right. Uh, but from a transition of zero through five, it's just an important conversation. So we're I, looking at that. How do you think about the that sort of transition when you think about child care and preschool and how those intersect? Sometimes, you know, I've talked with people that they say there's there's really no difference, but um, in many locations there's a very clear difference. But yeah. how do you, how do you think about that? So uh, you know I kind of so I'm concerned from a standpoint of how structured. So that when you're talking about that transition, so where do you make that transition and how structured that next level is? And so I appreciate and understand why we move to full day kindergartens and the structure there has to be there. Those kids, the age they are, uh, the further you move back in the age cycle, then it's important to plan for and make those things available. But how formal or structured it is, to me, is still the question. So one of the national conferences I went to on early learning and that, they talked about executive function, how kids learn at an early age. And part of how they learn those things is interaction with other kids and imaginations and things and not so much structure. So the question becomes, again, in that transition, so where do you start introducing more and more structure at what age? So the kids can still learn those functions and things they need to that they learn just by interacting versus actually being uh, environment. I don't think there's, I mean, there's a split opinion. We have, you have to move there. But where you make that transition? Now, of course, we're, we're talking about the preschool. So the four to five, the three to four, where that's at. Mm-hmm. I tend to lean more on the older part of that. Right. Only if we have in place 
necessary programs for the zero through whatever that age group is so that they're getting the opportunities uh, to address what the challenges are in that. Because if we don't have those in place, then at least we need to do the preschool in that we, more formally than we currently do. Right. And part of what it takes to get those things in place are some of the systems that I, I feel like Oregon has developed over time. Mm-hmm one of those being the early learning hubs. Yep. And I know that you're involved, uh, you're, uh, serve on the board of the your local early learning mm-hmm. hub. Could you talk about the role of the hubs in the state? Um, and from your point of view, what's, what's their value and what have you learned? Sure. So uh, first, their role is really to be a arbitrator, coordinator, collaborator of all kinds of local services that serve children and families. Uh, and so we have 16 of them in this state, uh, and people can say, well, 16 is too many, is too little. but what they need to do is be reflective of the areas in which they're operating because they're different. And I think the way they're set up right now, we do a pretty good job uh, of those being reflective of doing those. And so one of the true values from my standpoint is being able to bring local parties together that are providing these services for children and families both understand what services they're providing. Are there areas where we can gain efficiencies by working closer together? Are there things we're doing that are duplicating that we don't need to duplicate that we can provide resources someplace else? And then uh, working with them to look at outcomes and make sure we're focused on that we're getting the value for the money we're putting in that they're doing. And, and one of the big changes the hubs have created for local, a lot of local service providers is the outcome side of this. Not that they weren't doing good work, they were, but we didn't in many cases have a way that we could measure what right. that good work was. And so when you'd go to make an argument about money, you get to asking, so what are we getting for money? And we say, well, the kids have been, they've done well in that, so how do you prove that? Right. There's certainly ways, especially in earlier learning and with kids, to be able to show outcomes and the changes that prepare kids for school. So the hubs are very important in that. And then they're important in just understanding their regions. And again, since the priorities might different, then they make decisions on state funds coming through where they might invest those state funds in programs that might be different in eastern Oregon than it is in the Valley or even in Portland. But those hubs are made up of enough groups to do it. And they're really, they're reflective of a wide range of services, providers and stakeholders in the community. Another key ingredient is the connection to K through 12. Because before, in many cases, again, these were good programs that there was no connection with K through 12, but K through 12 is at the table. And in some cases, some of the services the early learning hubs invest in are located in K through 12 buildings right, as part right. of the systems. And all of that, to me, is of great value because you're getting a lot more for your investments. And it's more seamless for the kids and the family than it was before. Probably the easiest uh, point of connection would be thinking about how you connect preschool with K-12. Are you Ab- seeing some examples of that? Ab- absolutely. And so in some cases, uh, there's preschools within School districts. Some school districts have themselves started preschool. Others are talking about it. So in, in the case like in Springfield, we don't have preschool in the district, but we have a building. So an early learning building that has preschool, has a bunch of other, they're all collaborating together in the same building so the students get the services and that. So each area and district's difference how they do it, but what they're ensuring is indeed there's more preschool opportunities. If there's a space in a uh, school building, they might do it there if there's a space someplace else. But in many cases, the districts are sharing some of the cost to get these started, even if they're not doing it themselves, to make that link. Uh, and then as, you, as you're as you looking at the progress of the students there, you can compare that with what we know about kids entering kindergarten, uh, what's expected that they should know when they get to kindergarten. So 
you start making those direct links to see. Another area where some people are concerned about, well, are we doing too much comparing? Are we look, expecting too much? But to me, it's just a matter of knowing, again, so what are the things we know will help them be successful, and especially once they reach preschool versus kindergarten, and where are those key things, and is it working in whatever the environment is working, whether it's a private nonprofit within a school building, uh, where else in our communities? You touched on the concept of quality, and I know that can be somewhat controversial, but I I wanted to connect that to what you also said about workforce Mm -hmm. and the need to have a really well-prepared and a well-paid workforce in order to get to the outcomes that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? So that's something we've just started to, we've known uh, for a long time that there's a huge connection between the the workforce and the training in the workforce, but only in recent times in the state and otherwise have we really started to invest uh, directly to try to do that, both from a standpoint of providing additional training. Uh, So there's a couple things there. You can, you know, we can set standards, which we have, about what those instructors, what their core learning in that should be. And it's not, it's not necessarily just a degree. One of the discussions we have, there's some people that are working in the early learning environment, preschool and that, that don't have the specific degree, but they have years of experience. They're very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And so they, mm-hmm. should, they should be recognized at the same level as others. So part of it is recognizing. So what are the key skills that those people need? In some cases, it is a degree. Uh, do they currently have them? And if they don't, how can we help invest so they can? Both that means making the classes available at a time that they can attend, mm-hmm. that they can afford to attend, and then rewarding people if they do those things by increasing the pays based on that they do it. And then just setting, kind of having the standard across the board that these are the minimums that we know based on evidence in classrooms that both teachers and the curriculum and all those things need to include in order to be provide the best opportunity. That does not mean there won't be others out there that aren't quite there. There will right, be, right. And, but Absolutely. we don't want to discourage them from doing it. But the idea is kind of this continuum that once you get started, then we need to find ways to support it. And they're not, they can't do it by themselves. So that's why it's important for the states and the regions. The hubs, again, play an important role in that to support, make sure the classes are available, they can take the time to do it, substitutes to fill in when they're not there, so they can do it. All of those things are an important right. part There's of a, providing that, it. That capacity need at the center if the, if the teachers are going to go and continue their education. That's right. And, you, you know, it, recently, until recently, we didn't think much about you would. I think we were starting to offer classes in that, but didn't think about when would they ever have time to do that or have the money necessarily to pay for it. So there's a lot of efforts going on, but very important that every, that base is there. We know part of this is is just this economic question at the family level. And we know that mm-hmm. parents' economic stability has a great effect on the quality of their young children's lives. With your experience in economic development, what can Oregon do to cultivate more living wage jobs across the state? That's a, uh, you know, that's a key ingredient. So part of the committee, besides early learning, is family supports. And that's an interesting part. We're just struggling with how you actually define what we can do different than what we're already doing. And having worked years in economic development, it kind of goes back to supporting, encouraging the private sector, that which really the ones that creates most of the jobs, uh, to create new jobs and new opportunities throughout Oregon uh, that would help people, you know, be able to apply for. Now, the problem is, in many cases, the disconnect between skills and even if the jobs become available. So a lot of the efforts that are being done through K through 12 and uh, community colleges and that to make connections with skills, 
uh, CTE classes, you know, technical, all of those things I think are all part of this, what you can do to help families be able to do it. But at the end of the day, you've got to have enough investment occurring with jobs that are growing that will create the opportunity for living wages. And that's just an ongoing thing because the economy is always changing. Businesses, some are coming up, some are going down. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue for Oregon specifically is the allocation of those jobs. Mm-hmm. Portland, that area is growing rapidly. In many cases, there's more job opportunities than there even is here in the lower Willamette Valley, and certainly more than there are in northeastern Oregon or southeastern Oregon. So from a state standpoint, and the state continues to work on that, so how do we work with other regions to try to make sure some of those same job opportunities uh, present there? But in the meantime, from my standpoint, you have to support, make sure the support's there for those families that are struggling. There are some of those families with the skills that they're never going to get to the point that they can earn as much money as they what they really need to do. But we just need to make sure there's a support system in place, even if they can't, mm-hmm. that we support them and the chance for their children to be successful. As a member and chair of the House Committee on Early Childhood and Family Supports, you you get to meet the diverse range of adults responsible for nurturing, loving, uh, educating young children, and, and keeping them safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what lessons have you learned from them about the well-being of young children? Well... Several. First, that until recent times, we didn't uh, take a broad enough view on what that was. So one of the things we've learned is all these other indicators in that of what might be going on in families, even families that don't seem to be uh, challenged in any way or maybe not even trauma. But we know there may be things going on. So part of what we've learned is how to, again, put services and things out there, how to put in place uh, connections to where even a fam- the, the family itself may not feel that they're necessarily in danger, but they have a place to ask the question. They're connected to a uh, educational. So f- educating parents is an example. It's amazing what many parents that go through that the education that we offer through uh, early learning and that uh, that there there wasn't any trouble and there doesn't appear to be a trouble, but those little ingredients that they learn prevents some of those things from happening. So it's part of us keeping a, a eye on the ball, ensuring that we may have helped and support a family early, but just because we did when the child turns three, something might have changed. So how do you keep involved with the families, keep them connected? The other thing, of course, is we know that the economic situation has changed sometimes pretty rapidly for families. So how do we stay engaged? We, me and all of us collectively. Mm-hmm. So do the family feels comfortable? Maybe things were great until their child turned three and then they they lost their jobs, both lost their jobs, their economic situation. In many cases, they're struggling <laughs> to right. deal with that and don't realize the impact that's having both on them and that. So how do we keep engaged to doing it? So it's kind of that continuing from the time those children, well, before they're born, all the way through their educational cycle, yeah. that how do we we stay engaged or contact with those families in a way that it makes it comfortable for the families to reach out or be identified when they need to be so that if it's not the kids that needs the services the family does, that those things are in place. It's never ending, and we just have to keep our eye on it. There's, there's this idea of, of as, as we develop programs or services, that we're kind of delivering those to the community. And I think when you talk about parents and families and their needs, there's also the side of it uh, where they are key players in the education of their children. Mm-hmm. It's not key. some they're not they're not separate from it. And I think that's especially true when we talk about early learning and supports for young children zero to five. Yeah, one of the things uh, that I find fascinating in all this that we learned and learned early on as we started the success by six efforts is what little bit uh, a parent needs to do at times to really support that child. So like reading to the child a little bit each day, it's phenomenal the difference that can make, but parents don't think about it in many cases unless they're told and understood. You know, from a very young age, reading to your child, Mm -hmm. singing, 
And so in our early efforts, part of it was simply that, getting people to understand it doesn't take a lot of things different, not a lot of time necessarily, that can make a big difference in the child's life and then help to support the parents. But you're absolutely correct. It's kind of all, it's all of those things. Uh, but they play a key role. So it goes back to, even when I work in the K-12 through system, what systems are in place to support the family so they can engage, I mean the parents, so they can engage and support their child's learning. Because if you don't have both of those in place, the, the child will probably ultimately maybe be all right, but they could be much better from a standpoint, especially quickly if the family is not in trauma or something going on. And it's, that's the connection. And I think and most people know why early learning is so important, because historically, until recently, that's all fallen on the K-12 through system. Right. And they're not, it was never equipped to deal with all of those issues. And if it's, by the time it gets to there, and that child's six years old, the issues have only become more struggling than that. So more important to do it early and help the family and the kids. And, and there is that connection. If you, if you look, think about investing earlier in zero to five programs, that you, what you can actually do is reduce spending and yep. on things like remediation once you get those kids into, into the K, K-12 system. And that's absolutely true. That's very hard uh, for people making budget decisions, though, to understand, because we're making budget decisions in a very short cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe uh, all the information we've gained over the years about early learning and the zero to five and that clearly shows that, and it does. And I think we're starting even to see those results and in, in the school districts, and that'll tell you, but we're still not there from the standpoint of the cost because we're still not investing as much as we need to in early learning. Mm -hmm. And until yeah. we get those investments a little higher, frankly, so more people we can engage with more families and kids, we're still not going to see the total benefit. And so a switch comes first. Early learning, we've got to make more investments there, but we can't forget the kids already in the system that we didn't make enough investments to try to help them be successful too. Right, absolutely. So how do you make that argument to, to, to the people who make the budget decisions? <laughs> uh, I'm, so uh, I've been at this long, and I'm comfortable making the argument because I truly believe what the research tells us. Uh, and watching families, watching kids, I have grandchildren and watching them, I just know that's the right thing. Talking, my wife taught for 25, 28 years in uh, grade school, my daughter teaching high school, but watching it and being involved in education and such, and talking to kindergarten teachers, and they'll just tell you, those kids that have a better opportunity to be prepared when they come in are going to be more successful. We're, we're starting to see it. We've been at it long enough. We are seeing some results in some schools by third grade, the reading in that, but also in kindergarten. So that it's starting to continue to show that it does, but it just got to stick with something long enough. So I often make the argument that investment, at any level investments, you don't invest for the next six months or that, especially if you're investing in families and kids, you invest for the long term. Mm -hmm. And so we need to do it long enough right. to believe it. And the good news is there's a lot of national work that's being done uh, that's showing the same results. We're not the only state. Right. We're a leader mm -hmm to some extent, but we're not the only state. And so there's a lot of other states doing some very creative things, some other programs that we're not as far advanced in that we can look at too. Uh, so I just tell people, then why would all these other states and people be doing this? Some states that philosophically were very different, mm -hmm. but they're making these investments only reinforces to me that there is value long-term and we just have to stick with it. What else should Oregonians know about the House Committee on Early Childhood and Family Supports? So this is a policy committee. So it's not the budget committee. And this is always interesting for people to understand because mm -hmm. uh, we might reach great consensus around the policy right. and we have, but we can't always get it funded because then it has to go through the budget process. And so there's a disconnect. Uh, but I think the important thing to understand, since we do have this policy committee that's looking long-term and working with the key stakeholders, it's, it's creating a, a bigger awareness, both in the legislature and the state, though, the value and where the interconnects are, and helping to make the arguments 
on the budget side then about where the value becomes. And we're, I, the members of my committee are tremendous. They're really, they're committed to this. It's got nothing to do with partisan politics at the end of the day, but it's got to do with committed to children and the families and doing it. Uh, and what I'm learning from these policy discussions amongst that is key areas where we can make small changes that will make a big difference uh, on how we deliver the services we've already got. But having that dialogue amongst with the stakeholders and that at, at this committee level, a committee focused on those things, it will make a big difference. Where before it's a little bit in this committee, it's a little bit in that committee, but no focus. Right. This is really focused on uh, the value of it and what we can do incrementally, let alone the big policy changes, uh, having those conversations. And as we tried last time, we had some discussions about the budget. We committee can advocate with the budget committee you know, speak mm -hmm. out and say, we've had the discussions, here's the stakeholders, we think these are important and try to move the discussion about revenue and income to further support our efforts. Let's, uh, let's touch on the budget question for 2019. What Can you talk about projected revenue and what can we anticipate in the upcoming session? The good news is we're in a very healthy economy, so revenues will be up again as they have the past and a billion dollars or so increase, but what people have to keep in perspective that's general fund revenue, which is a small portion of our total budget. Our budget's made up of federal, all kinds of other funds. And so when we're talking about, but the general fund is the money we use in education, whether it be early learning, K through 12, community colleges, uh, four institutions. So while that sounds like, so let's say the budget's up 6% or something, everybody says, that's great. The problem remains the cost of our services are continuing at a faster rate than our revenues are growing, mm -hmm. which means every budget cycle we have to be looking at, so how do we get by with what we've got? Right. I mean, we don't have to do that. We could talk about new revenue, but let's say we don't get to the new revenue conversation. <laughs> so we're talking about what we can do. So then it becomes priorities. Now, the good news, the good news from my standpoint is there's a much better understanding of the value of our learning. We have a committee that's focused on it. So those conversations on the budget, if we have to live within what we have, we have a better opportunity today to make an argument for increased investments in this area because the argument about the long-term savings will be there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've raised that, but it's going to be a tough budget cycle because we're going to have to make, unless we find new revenue, ways for new revenue, we're going to have to make some tough decisions about where those investments. And there's some key areas outside of education. So, you know, Department of Human Services and children and how, I mean, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's a real challenge for the state. And it kind of goes back to early learning mm -hmm. from a standpoint of supporting families and children. Mm -hmm. Those are all connected. Right. They're not, they're not, not connected. And so when we're looking at the budget, we got to make sure all of those pieces, uh, we're making adequate or reasonable investments to try to make all the pieces work. But certainly we on the committee will make as much argument as we can mm -hmm. <laughs> that if we have to make a priority, mm -hmm. this field ought to be a priority. And I know a lot of the stakeholders will agree with us and we'll be, that's how the system works. You get in there and advocate, make the arguments, show the statistics, the progress you're making, goes back to tracking and doing those things. And I think we have a good story to tell. Uh, so then it's just a matter of what may come up in the budget that we didn't anticipate that'll demand money from the general fund versus others. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are some other areas there uh, that you just don't know going in. Any other impacts that you can uh, point to in terms of education funding in the upcoming session? Well, K through 12. So the issue has always been when we started this effort on early learning as separate. So do we fund that with new revenues or do we fund it with some of the money that's already going through K through 12 knowing that at some point in the future... <laughs> we'll have diminished uh, 
that will continue to be a discussion to try to understand that. But I am one of those believers. There's not enough money in K-12 either right now. Right. And so it shouldn't be an either or. It's a combination of looking at it. And the more we can look at it zero through, the better off we'll be. But there's going to continue to be struggles at K-12 through from a financing standpoint. Community colleges, four institutions. So all of that's important in the network. I come from a perspective, though, if we don't get it right early, we're never going to have enough money to get it right later. Right. And so if we have to make choices, and we will have to make some choices, we still need to be investing more early, early learning and the K through 12 to make sure by the time those kids get through, they're, they're successful. They've completed that early education. So then they have choices mm-hmm. about what they want to do. Because if they're not there, the thing I hear from community colleges and for institution, the kids aren't coming ready to learn when they get there. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not because we're not making the investments and doing it right to get there. Are there opportunities for increasing revenue or tax reform? What are you seeing? I always think there are, but I, <laughs> not everybody agrees with me. Uh-huh. So two areas. Uh, first, our, you know, we're too dependent on in, individual income taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Our system is just too heavy. Uh, and we've known that. That's not a secret. We know that when you compare us to any other state's we're too dependent on one source. And so when the economy goes to pot, we're in real trouble here because we have no other sources. And so some people continue to argue that's a sales tax. I've mm-hmm. been supportive of that. I don't know that we'd ever get that done in this state, but that ought to be on the table as part of the discussions. I think just balancing the system. So years ago, uh, businesses, corporations paid a higher percentage of it. I think there's an opportunity to do that, to balance the system more amongst who pays the income taxes and that. I think there's an opportunity with the tax incentives or the tax payments that we use to try to incent businesses to invest. I'm in favor of that, but I'm not in favor of just keep doing it if we don't know if we're getting an outcome that we expect, holding people accountable. So if we're going to give tax incentives, and it's hundreds of millions of dollars of biennium we do in tax incentives. Mm -hmm. So if those aren't returning to this state what we expect them to, we ought to quit doing it. Right. And that's more revenue we could spend someplace else, or maybe we just need to change incentives. So I think asking those questions. So I think there's multiple things we can do that uh, won't raise all the revenue to start with, but it'll start increasing our revenue. From your vantage point, having you know, years of experience, um, both in your professional life and then serving uh, in the city and the state, and if you look ahead at the vision for Oregon, what does Oregon really need to do to make this a, a better, more prosperous place for young children and their, and their families? There's several things. One, uh, we just have to go back to looking at what the supports, what families need today versus what they needed a decade ago or two decades ago. And we can argue about why they need those things, but it doesn't change the fact they do. So from a state standpoint, we just need to make sure we do everything we can to provide, uh, to help families overcome those barriers. In some cases, it's, like, it's all kinds of different things. But as a state, we have an obligation to do as much as we can to make sure families can be as successful as they possibly can. And that's both from a standpoint of the investments we make for jobs, the investments we put in education at the higher levels so that people have the right skills. Those are things we just have to keep doing. Uh, and then we have, you know, besides that, though, we've got to go back and look at this whole state from a, the differences in the state and the diversity in the state, and are we adequately addressing And I say we're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, things are changing pretty rapidly, both from an economic standpoint, from a diversity standpoint, and we've not come to grips with what that means from a standpoint. And we've got some great programs that may not be today positioned quite as well as they should be given all those changes. And I'll pick on language. I think that's going to get a bigger and bigger problem for us. Uh, we don't require languages in our schools yet. Mm-hmm. But as the population continues to, to grow and diversity, and you look at that, 
that's something that we had to think about and how that works. Uh, but certainly from providers. So we're doing a better job with providers making sure they have other languages available, that they get some culturally sensitive training, but we got to do more of that stuff ultimately. But at the end of the day, this state just has to look at how we finance, how we pay for the services we need, and is that balanced? Are we sharing that burden? And I don't believe we are. Mm -hmm. Then how do we get the system to where we share the burden? And ultimately, then have we agreed if we're going to share the burden, are we agreed on what are, what's the best investments? Where do we get the most good? And I think the most good goes back to supporting family and kids so they can be successful. Because if they're successful, we don't have to support them long term. Mm -hmm. We've helped them, you know, from the short term succeed. Yeah. Representative Lively, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. If you have a moment, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.